We're getting back into James today. Are you surprised? We're back in James today, chapter 4. And um, I've given the, uh, the subtitle here, Opposed. I was really trying to be able to, you know, use all the same letters and, and make it really cool and all of that. And it's just not working out that way. So I think something is opposing me in doing that. So this morning, um, we're just going to use that as our subtitle, Opposed. Um, how, how many of you, by show of hands, um, you, you want to be opposed when you're wanting your own way? Raise your hand. Okay. Uh, one person, and I know this person to be an honest person. I, I will have to have longer conversation. Uh, but yeah, one person out of the whole group. So um, how, how many of you, us, uh, when what you're going to do is going to lead to disaster in your life are okay to be opposed? Raise your hand. Okay, all right, there we go. Um, and, and how many are thankful that you were opposed and didn't have to suffer the consequences of a really poor decision. And you're grateful for the person that opposed you. Uh, my wife has done that for me a lot in our life together. And um, has opposed me at times. And then I see what would have been the consequences of the decision. Right? Um, I wonder how many of us are thankful to God when he opposes our way. Not only through his word but by his spirit. When he constantly troubles our minds, when he discomforts our hearts, when he frustrates our efforts to get our own way. I wonder how many of us are thankful in those moments of time because we've already admitted we don't like to be opposed in getting our own way. Right, and so it's a it's a it's a tough thing. And this this section of of James's writing is is about to give us a dozen commands. It's not going to do it in the whole seventeen verses. It's going to shrink it down to about three verses or four verses. And and James is going to give us a dozen divine commands. And that's tough. That's tough. We remember, though, that divine commands come with divine empowerment, right? So to lay the foundation for this, rather than to just kind of hit us between the eyes, James pulls us in, as he has done multiple times so far, as we've seen, right? He pulls us in with some questions to engage our minds. We're not just, we're not just listening, but now we're having to actually engage our minds a bit, and so he says this in verse 1 of chapter 4. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? What is the source of the quarrels and conflicts among you? So, so now the people are having to engage their minds just a little bit. The word quarrels comes from a Greek word, polemos, which means war or warlike or hostile it, it gives us the English word um, polemic, which means uh, like an aggressive attack or some type of, of refutation of opinions or the principles of somebody else. 
um, it, it became known for defining the art or practice of disputing something or someone or in controversy. And um, it, it really stood for this prolonged, serious kind of combat or dispute that would be have would be had. Um, the Greek origins, the word war, right? So it's serious. We recognize that this word is serious. Conflicts then further shows that, that this is serious, meaning fight or battle. And the two together paint this picture of some type of extremely combative, maybe even violent relationship that is taking place which in the next verse can even give way to murder. So again, serious, right? And where were these aggressive relationships taking place? Between the members of churches. The people professing faith in Jesus, professing to be the followers of Jesus, to whom James is writing. And we know, though, that this whole idea in James of proof of faith is defining. Are the people that are quarreling and and have conflicts among them, are they truly the followers of Jesus? Or are they just pretending to be? James has given us in these first three chapters some pretty good information to go with, some pretty, some pretty true things to check ourselves on to make sure, as has been said, that, that we are examining in such a way as to understand that we're in the faith, not just saying we believe. I, I was thinking about that when Ross was leading the song, I believe, I believe, I believe. And I wonder if James would have said, okay, you say you believe, now show me the works that back that up, right? That, that are expressed through that belief. It would have been a longer song had Ross, you know, had to tie those things in and say, I believe. And so as a result, I do. It probably wouldn't have rhymed. It would have been horrible. Um, but there's, a, there's, there's this stuff going on. And, and what's clear, right, for James, what's very clear for James is, is the, the quarrels and the conflicts are proving something. They're proving something about the faith that is being professed. And though James asks the question and and makes them think about these things, he doesn't expect a reply because he knows where this comes from. And, and, And so his next question is rhetorical. Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Defining some of these words is helpful to paint a far more in-depth picture of what James is saying. Like the word for pleasures, it, it brings to life the idea of gratification of, of a sen- sensual nature, gratification of a, of a fleshly desire, and its root is our more modern word for a hedonist or hedonism. Every place it's used in the New Testament, it always describes negative behavior. It always describes ungodly behavior. So James says of these pleasures that they're part of an internal war going on in the mind, but also in the physical body of the people. And it's the reality of a fallen nature and simply living on the planet. 
So in real time, again, it's the present active, right? We've, we've talked about that already. So he's giving things in real time for these people. This is presently going on. This is happening right now in the people that are reading this letter or it's being read to them. He gives them a picture of what this desire, this, this giving in to this fallen nature, this living for less, as we've already discussed, looks like. He says, you lust... And you do not have. So you commit murder. Wow. You are envious and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. Here, here's that stuff going on again. This is the reality of the ugliness that can be, in this case, is in the midst of those claiming to be free from these things. Because of who Jesus is. And what he's done for them. Done in them. But these realities bring to light what is really going on in some of these folks. They say, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. Now that seems a little bit odd right there. You lust and you do not have so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. It seems maybe just a bit out of place. What is it talking about? Rather than asking God for help, they are content to use their own knowledge, their own power, their own effort, their own wisdom to get what they want. It's a testimony, this verse is, to their independence from God. Think about the state of mind to not even consider it a good idea to involve God in what you want. Right? To, to not involve God in what you believe you need. You do not have because you do not ask. Now, some faith preachers have taken that to a whole new level, but the context doesn't give them the permission to. This is a reality, and, and, and maybe that, that's the point at, at the root of their selfish desires is they don't want to ask God. They fear he might not agree with what they want. Or worse yet, he might oppose them. But that's not the case for everyone. Some of them do ask, which James points out. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasure. So there's one group that they, they, they don't have because they don't ask. They don't even consider God in the equation in any way, shape, or form. And then there's another group that do ask, and, and yet they're asking with wrong motives so that they can spend it on their pleasures. In the asking here is the revealing of the heart, right, of these individuals that James is speaking to. And this is the interesting thing. So if there's a group of people that are hearing this letter, it's, it's being read to them, or, or maybe they, they get their hands on it and they actually get to read parts of it or whatever, there's going to be a mix in this group, right? So who is James talking to? He's talking to the people that this matches their behavior. He's talking to the people that this matches their belief. He's talking to the people that this matches their actions, now, some would like to say, well, he's talking to believers here. He's talking to unbelievers here. I'm, I'm believing that there are certain believers that 
some of this would really affect. There are also unbelievers that this would affect. You do not, you ask, but you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. The revealing of the heart is personal pleasure here. They're, they're not asking for things that please God. They're not asking God to fulfill his desires in their life. They're not asking for God to be glorified in, in what they're wanting or for him to be honored in what they're wanting. So it's a testimony, really, to their self-centeredness. So on the one hand, God is not even considered and God is not even included. On the other hand, God is asked and all of these things, but he's not asked with any desire for the person to glorify him in the asking or even for what's given to them to glorify him in any way. It's what I want for my pleasures. To that, James, James poses two more questions, but not before kind of defining them. These people that are hearing this, that it's actually matching up to their lives. He says, you adulteresses. Now see, James, is, James has been, remember he's, he's saying, brother, brother, you know, family, friends, and all that, and then bam, wow, yeah, whoa, shock, right? So imagine as you're walking through this, you're hearing this, and all of a sudden you're, you're contemplating, are any of these things true of me? And there's some people saying that all of these things are true of me. And there's some people saying, well, none of these things are true of me. And all of this is going on. And then all of a sudden, you adulteresses. Who does that hit? When this terminology is used in Scripture, it often refers to those who are not only unfaithful to their covenant relationship with their spouse, but often those who are unfaithful to the covenant relationship and the covenant promises that they have made to God. In the Old Testament, it was often referring to those who rejected God and served idols. Hosea 3 says, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved, who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods. What kind of love is that? It's perfect love. Ezekiel 16 gives a good picture of it as well. You can go back and, and look at that if you desire... When the Apostle Paul gives a list of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God, idolaters and adulterers are right next to each other in the list in 1 Corinthians 6. James's question now, with, with that defining of their behavior hanging in the air, you adulteresses, he says, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Now, some people will, will take this to say we should cloister ourselves in a group of only believers um, as if we can fully know, right, who are only believers. God alone knows that because there's been a lot of people that have fooled me through the years. There have been a lot of people that fooled you through the years. There are people that sit in this room or watch on the video that are fooling some of us even right now. So even if we were able to do that, this is not what it's calling for, is this cloister to say, I, I'm, I'm not going to have any friendships of anybody in the world. 
That's not what it's saying. The, the two possible relationships are, are placed in opposition here. Relationship with the world and all it stands for and its desires. And relationship with God and all he stands for and his desires. That's what James is, is driving at in this moment. But the, the answer to the question should again be, be so obvious. James is able to use the unspoken answer as, as the source for his conclusion. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So friendship with the world is hostility toward God. He goes one step further and he says, So if you wish to be a friend of the world, then recognize you are going to make yourself, you are going to be an enemy of God. And as we talked about even in the Wednesday night class, that's what we were before we were born again, right? Before the Spirit indwelled us, we we were the enemies of God. Some are still the enemies of God. So you can be a friend to one or the other, but in the choice of the friendship is also the choice of who will be opposing you and why. This, this question is, is then put in the, in the context of the scripture, but, but before we look at uh, that, we, we need to know that there is a little bit of, of difficulty for the translators um, in this next portion because this is, is not a direct quote from any passage, so the translators are kind of left to do their best. Um, we're going to look at two renderings of the text to kind of see what James is driving at here. This is, this is how the NAS translate this next portion. So for context here, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And then he says this, Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Now in this translation... James is indicating that the one professing to follow Jesus loves God and is devoted to him is guilty of spiritual adultery, having chosen to befriend the world at the expense of the relationship with God. It is then understandable in this translation that God's response would be to desire or to be jealous for his people's devotion to him alone. This would be consistent with what we read in Exodus regarding this concept and, and the character of God. You shall not worship uh, or idols or, or serve them, for I am the Lord, a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the father and the children. Then Exodus 34, for you shall worship no other gods, for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Now, when we, when, when we look at that word jealous... Right? We have a little bit of difficulty with that word jealous and, and referring to God in that way. But it's also spoken of in Deuteronomy 4 and Joshua 24 and Nahum 1 in, in much the same way. And in no way is it an indication that there is a flaw in the character of God. Now for us to say I'm jealous, there, there's a lot of flaws there, right? For me to say I'm jealous of something, there's, there's flaw there in my humanity. But God doesn't have that flaw. 
He's not humanly jealous as suspicious or distrustful or envious of something. This speaks to the reality of his perfection and and the demand for complete and exclusive devotion to that perfection. Devoted to him alone. Why? Because there is none above him. If I'm jealous of somebody or something, there can always be something else that will fill that void that I'm feeling in my jealousy. And then I will say, well, I don't need to be jealous for this because I have this. When we, when we talk about God, there is nothing else. So in the perfection of God, there is an understanding that full devotion to him alone is the only place where people need to live. And for him to desire that is completely in keeping with his character. This is consistent with what we know Scripture to teach and and who we know God to be. So, So hold on to that for a minute. That's the NAS translation. This is how the King James translates the same portion. Do ye... Do ye think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Okay, how many of you got all of that, right? It's King James, do you, do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit that dwells in us um, lusts to envy? And that sounds really weird, because that does, sounds like it's not talking about God anymore. It's talking about the human spirit. In this translation, James would be indicating the obvious nature of what is in a man or a woman. And he's communicating to them that the way in which they are living is not only proving who they are, but is proving the scripture to be true. Don't you recognize that the scripture doesn't say in vain that the spirit inside of you lusts and is envious? Right? It's consistent with what we know the scripture to teach and who we know people to be. So one is consistent with the character of God and who we know him to be. The other is consistent with the scripture and what it teaches about who people are and who we know them to be. And and both have their, their merit. Now, this is not a crisis for the validity of scripture. Because either way, James's message is going to get through. And that is... There is conflict with God. There is hostility toward God in all those who do not trust and do not obey him, who follow their own way, no matter what they might say to the contrary. So the scripture speaks to be true, and God in his perfection speaks to be true. And just because the translators couldn't find a passage to match it to, and they're trying to do their best to get it there, If you read the King James Version or you read the NAS Version, you are going to come to the same conclusion. Let God be true and every man be a liar. Right? Let the scripture be solid and valid and speak to the condition of humanity. For James, inspired by the Holy Spirit to record these things, it's impossible to remain in a position of holding God's word as the authority and holding the world's standards as the authority at the same time. James makes it clear that God is the authority. James makes it clear that God's word is the authority. No matter whether he was thinking of a quote from one Old Testament passage or a different Old Testament passage or maybe from a psalm. 
And with that central to the truth of Scripture and to James's message, he makes this welcoming and loving and sobering statement. But he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Why do I say, you you can understand it being sobering, right? You can understand it being sobering. But why do I say that it's welcoming and loving? It's because in spite of what the hearts of men and women are prone to, God is not content to leave us there. Prisoners, held captive by our own fallen nature. He offers, he provides, he lavishes, he gives greater grace. As the song so succinctly states, Grace that is greater than all our sin. And yet there is an understanding that it can't be received while clinging to self-determination. It can't be received when clinging to self-rule. It can't be received when when clinging to self-governance. It it can't be received when clinging to self-will. It can't be received when even clinging to selfishness. All of which are the evidences of pride. So what must God do? He must oppose it. Why? Because he's gracious. He's merciful. And he's loving. You you remember the question that we dealt with right at the beginning about being opposed. This is where those things come into play again. But, it, but it's good to ask another question, and that is, why does God oppose? Why does he oppose? And there's, there's many reasons that we could give if we kind of got our collective heads together and gave our own reasons. But there is none greater, in my view, than, than to place it back on the nature and character of love that is God. The psalmist describes it in this way. For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly. You think about that for a second. In the highest of heavens, in the greatest of the great, exalted above every name, yet he regards the lowest of the low. But the haughty, The high, the exalted, the proud. He sees them coming. He regards the lowly. Those humbled in or by life. Those living in obscurity. Those unknown. He sees them. They are not unknown to him. They are not prevented from being seen. They will not be overlooked. They will not be forgotten by God. We see it all throughout Scripture in in the everyday truths 
of the Psalms, in the everyday wisdom of the Proverbs. We see it in the reality of our lowliness. For while we were still helpless in our sin, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Now at first glance, this this might not connect. But there is a reality to the foundation of reconciliation with God. The foundation to relationship with God that is impossible without true lowliness. Without true humility. We must see ourselves in a way that we would otherwise not desire to see ourselves as guilty, helpless sinners. As poor and spiritually bankrupt people. As having a heart that is exceedingly wicked. As being self-preserving and, and self-serving. As being dependent from every, in, independent from everything else. But being dependent at the same time. Unable to voluntarily embrace God. His plan. Holy life. That's when we see ourselves, when we see ourselves that way. That's who James is talking to, the people that have, in their their pride and their self-will and determination and all of those things, they, they, on one hand, don't even consider God. On the other hand, they ask him for things, but only to, to spend it on their pleasure, not for his will, not for his glory. You see how this is all coming together. In what James is saying. So it's necessary for our good. For God to work in such a way. As to make us. Humble. It's necessary for our good. For God to oppose us. At every turn. When pride works its way. To the forefront of our lives. It is in God's love. It is in God's mercy. That he opposes We don't look at opposition like that, do we? Now, when we run it through and we say, oh, you protected me from evil and harm. Thank you for opposing me. I didn't like the way you did it, though. I didn't really like what you said. And that really bothered me, right? It was helpful for me to see this in a little bit of a different way years years and years ago. Um, I, I would never purposefully wake up in the morning. And I don't think anybody in this room would do this. I, I, I would never purposefully wake up in the morning and before I get out of bed, lift my eyes toward the heavens in a moment of being before God and say, oppose me today. Right? I would never do that. That would be the most idiotic statement to make. It, it, it would be it would, it would be ludicrous to even think that. And yet, when I choose my pride over humility, my self-determination, my self-rule, my self-governance, my self-will, my selfishness over submission and surrender and dependence on God in a daily, hourly, minutely way, then I am saying to him, oppose me today. And because of his character, his nature, his love, his mercy, knowing that there can be no reconciliation to him in my pride. 
Knowing that there can be no relationship with him in my pride. He gladly takes the role to oppose those things that stand in the way of what is truly for my greatest good. And that is him and him alone. James knows this. He understands this. And so he communicates God's loving opposition. And and to do this, here's where the 12 divine commands come in. All impossible to do while functioning in pride. All impossible to do while placing confidence in a fallen nature. We know divine command, divine empowerment, part of that greater grace that is needed to be able to obey. Here's the way James communicates to those who truly want to follow Jesus. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. That's a lot of red. That's a lot of command right there. Ten of them right in a row, just like that. Submit to God, meaning to to willfully come under his authority, to follow his will, to obey his word. Resist the devil means to stand against as in being opposed to anything that he is for. And there's a promise there, actually. He will flee from you. Do you know that, that, that Satan does not have the ability to override human will? He doesn't have the ability to override, override human will. He's a defeated foe. The victory was won by Jesus in his temptation and on the cross. And the enemy has no power unless it is given by God. And the devil can only control those things that he's given control of. Right? Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Reminds the followers of Jesus of the communion that Jesus said is theirs because of the relationship the reconciliation he provided and that he uh, that that it is intentional on our part and god will allow his presence to be known cleanse your hands you sinners would have been understood by his audience in dealing with that separation and repentance and and the forgiveness that is offered in those who will confess and repent Purify your heart calls for the dealing with the place that sin is initiated. You double-minded is the reality for a person who says one thing and does the other. This cannot be any longer. What you believe is what you say and how you live. Be miserable is the idea of feeling the, the desolate reality of a life as a sinful man. A sinful woman separated from God. And, and, and to not simply push past it to get to what's next, but to deal with the brokenness of who we are. Be miserable. Mourn brings about the idea of grief and remorse that is walked in by those who have truly, truly come to a place of contrition. It's meant to evoke a depth of understanding of the death that is sin. Weep. <laughs> I thought this was an odd one because have you ever told somebody, you need to cry, cry right now, right? I mean, it, yeah, it, it's, it's almost like, you know, telling your kid, um, say you're sorry. Well, they, they can do it. I guess I could conjure up a tear if, if I was forced to. 
Seems a little odd, but it's, it's really speaking of that miserable place, that mourning place that then outwardly manifests itself in the sorrow of bringing that person to humility before God, bringing me to humility before God. And if I don't weep, then when will I ever weep? Let your laughter be turned into mourning. Your joy to gloom, the the two ways of conveying that this is not trivial and that the things that were once a source of entertainment and frivolity, (laughs) I laughed at that, (laughs) I laughed at that, they're now seen as just the opposite. What you laughed at before about your sinful ways doesn't make you laugh anymore, makes you truly sad. That you were ever that way. Then he says, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord. It's, it's the place you want to be so that he will not have to oppose. And it, instead, he will exalt. He will lift up. He will, he will place you in right standing. He will place you in right relationship and, and right where you need to be, right where you can be to, the, to be the most receptive to everything that he has for you, for me, for those who are his. What James says next is meant to put a guard over the mouth and, and to make sure that the followers of Jesus think rightly. Do not speak, command, against one another, brothers, He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. Is that your place? Seems to be flowing there. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? The followers of Jesus should be able to be safe when they are together with their brothers and sisters. In Christ. There, there should be mutual, mutual edification and love and support and encouragement and protection and a sense of security that is there when the brothers and sisters are together before the Lord. The idea of what James is talking about here goes to the heart and the, and the purpose of a heart that would be judging and, and condemning when gathered together. Additionally, there's, there's a desire in this kind of interaction to use the law as, as it was not intended to be used, like a tutor, like, like something that would point you in a direction, but more as a personal agent of the individual to will harm on the person, at least in their mind. Look at you and what you've done. You have violated God's right. I mean... In all of this, the individual speaking against his brother misses the point of their place in everything. They're not God. They're not God. And they shouldn't try to play him. That's the pointed question. Who are you to judge your neighbor? And if all of the ones before don't bring a person to the place of humility desiring to eliminate their pride, to not be opposed by God. This one puts it pretty plainly. Verse 13, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know 
what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. The end of, of, of this part of the passage records the folly. But of who? This can represent people who consistently live without even considering God's desire or God's will, like we heard earlier. This can represent people who might consider God in their plan, but ignore what he has to say if it's not part of their agenda. Remember what we just read about the people that don't consider and about the people that do, but their motives are, yeah. It's, it, it's interesting to note that these people... And I don't know if this was purposeful on the part of James or not, if it was inspired by the Holy Spirit to, to do this particular thing. But these people make five statements of what they will choose. First, the time, today or tomorrow. Second, the place, such and such a city. Third, the length of the, the venture, a year. Fourth, the activity to engage in business. And fifth, the thing they really want, make a profit. The reason that it's interesting is what one scholar noted, it's much like someone else who had five self-centered I wills. I will ascend. I will look at it in Isaiah 14 when you get a chance. Because that one thought he too was all-knowing. He thought he was all-powerful. He thought he was invincible. So James offers what should be the attitude then of the individual before God. Don't be like his enemy. He had five will statements, I will statements too. Instead, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. In other words, do not ignore that God's will is all that matters. Verse 16. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. In other words, do not deny that God's will is all that matters. And then verse 17 says, Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. In other words, do not disobey God's will because it is sin. And that matters. That matters. Verse 15, though, bears, bears repeating here because it is the sure sign that you are in a place where God has no need to oppose you. If the Lord wills, we will do this or we will do that. You want grace to flow in and through your life? You, you want blessing to flow in and through your life? You want peace to flow in and through your life? It's simple, James says. Respond to God's commands, to God's will, in humility and simple obedience. But Pastor Dave, what if obedience isn't that simple? What if it's not that simple? Remember divine command comes with divine empowerment? How can it not be simple 
if you are divinely empowered to do it by the spirit that dwells in you. Unless, as Paul said, it doesn't. Right? So we can't make excuses for not being obedient. He will give you divine empowerment to do what he's called you to do because it proves his work in your life. It proves the faith that you claim and it will be visible to all those around you that transformation has taken place. James has got the number. He's dialed it. He's just waiting for somebody to pick up. Right? Now, again, I know there's a little bit of a somber mood right now. And that's okay. Because if you're thinking about yourself, then you need to be. But if you're thinking about somebody else, then that's okay because you are called into that person's life to to give them the truth of God as well. Right? But we live, as was prayed this morning in our, in our earlier time, we live in a very confusing world. And we live in an even more confusing world that claims to be the church. James wasn't fooled, nor was he confused. He was clear. And we can be too. You're not going to wake up tomorrow morning and say, God oppose me. However, If you choose your own self-will, self-determination, self-rule, self-governance, and your own pride, he will. Why? Because he loves you. Because he's merciful. He has greater grace than you have ever known to offer to whatever situation you're in of obedience. He will give you exactly what you need in order to be able to obey him. So in that way, it is simple. And yet, right? And yet, we still live these lives. And that's why this communion is so important. I'm going to ask the guys to come up and go ahead and start distributing things. But that's why this this communion is, is so important, right? It's because this brings us back to the reality of what Jesus did to reconcile us to God. It brings us back to the reality of what Christ has provided in relationship of reconciliation. Sin has been defeated. Death has been overcome. Divine empowerment flows through the cross. Right? Right? So as we're, as we're receiving these things, as we're, as we're, we're taking these things into our, our hands and we're holding on to this cup and we're holding on to this bread, we're recognizing what God has provided. We're recognizing what God has done in Jesus. We are recognizing that there is divine empowerment to be able to walk in obedience, Right? We're recognizing that. That's what matters. That's what matters. Let me grab one, Dave. Thanks.
Once you receive, will you stand with me? And we're going to conclude our time together. Lord, I, I don't know how many times I have come to this moment in my life. Hundreds, maybe maybe a thousand even. I'm always reminded of the examination that needs to take place in me, not for the purpose of condemnation, for the purpose of recognizing, Lord, what you have done, your love and your mercy and your grace. That even when you oppose me, Lord, and you oppose my pride, you oppose my independence and my selfishness, Lord, you are doing it because of your great love for me. When James says in the order that he says it, but you, God, give greater grace. He could have easily switched those words to the back end. But God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, and God gives greater grace. But he didn't do that. He worded it at the front end, knowing that the next statement would be difficult. To know that You, God, are going to oppose those things in me because you love me. Because your desire is for your perfection to be manifested in the relationship that I have with you. And before you ever said those words, you already provided the way for me to receive them. So much like we receive this communion today and we eat this bread and, and we drink from this cup, we, we, we know that we are remembering the Lord's death until he comes again. But there's something about this that has given us the ability to trust fully, Lord, that you are capable, you are able to do in us with what no one else can. And so, Lord, as we receive this today, would you do that? If there are some of my brothers and sisters who are like me and struggle with obedience sometimes, struggle with having our own way, having friendship with the world, its desires, its wants, its attractions, that we can place ourselves in a situation where you have to oppose us, Lord, would, would you help us to find simple, Lord, obedience by your empowerment? In Jesus' name. Let's take the bread together. And the juice. Lord, I, I ask you for the people that are in this room today, the people that might watch, 
that you would walk with them. Lord, let their faith be lived out in deeds that honor you, that glorify you, that cause people to see you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.